In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hey, this is Cami. Sarah Van Voorhis joins us today on Money Tales. Sarah is a high-powered family law attorney in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sarah has been a saver as far back as she can remember. Is that nature or is it nurture? Sarah tells us her parents, who adopted her, weren't necessarily savers, so they weren't modeling that. But when Sarah met her biological grandmother when she was in her late 20s, she learned that her biological father was a diligent saver too. Sarah wonders if she was born to be a saver. Sarah is a founding partner of Van Forhis and Sosna LLP. Her family law practice focuses on complex marital and domestic partner dissolutions, child custody, child and spousal support, and more. Over the course of her career, Sarah has received many recognitions by Super Lawyers Magazine as a top-notch attorney and super lawyer. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three Money Tales conversation topics Sarah hits on in this conversation. First, the danger of a common perception that the person who's making more money or brings more money into a relationship has the power and financial decision-making ability. Second, marriage is a contract. Premarital agreements serve to help you in defining that contract further, so make sure you truly understand the terms of a premarital agreement when signing one. And third, be sure to look at your financial statements periodically. Doing so will help you make informed financial decisions. Now, on to our conversation with Sarah Van Voris. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Cami, how have you been? I've been great. I had a great experience this morning. I was talking with one of our colleagues who's in her 20s, hardworking, smart. She's going back to get her CFP, her financial planning certification. I asked her what has been a surprise for her as she's taking all these classes. And she said, I've been really surprised how much I have enjoyed the investing section. That's great. Did she say why? She said, gosh, it was just so interesting. And I learned so much and it wasn't as intimidating as I felt. This is the best part. She said, so as a result, I'm actually talking more with my friends about investing. And I find that women in particular, these are her words, don't talk about investing. They think that they have to know everything. And so they don't. So I'm realizing I just want to start the conversation. Sandy, what are you feeling right now? My heart's feeling very warm, Cammie. It's a great feedback from her. I just was so impressed with her. And she's already an impressive lady. That's great. Thank you for sharing that story, Cammie. Absolutely. Let's introduce our guest today, Sarah Van Voorhis. It is great to have you on Money Tales. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Would you start us off with a short introduction, sharing a couple of pivotal moments that impacted you and influenced who you are today? I am a family law attorney, and that's code for divorce lawyer. I've been doing this exclusively for 21 years now. I'm a state bar certified family law specialist here in California. My choice of careers was influenced by my general focus on security. And I was thinking about what's a pivotal moment in my life regarding security and how that relates to money. I don't have a pivotal moment, but I do know that as far back as I can remember, I've been a saver. When I talk to friends and family about it, my parents weren't particular savers. They weren't spenders either. They were just your sort of average people. I was adopted and I found out later in my life, I met my biological family when I was in my late 20s. And when I was talking to my grandmother, my biological grandmother about this, she just laughed. She said, your biological father, he'd get his hands on a dime and he'd have that dime 30 years later. It was kind of a shock. So when I talk about a pivotal moment, recognizing that maybe we're just born the way that we are when it comes to money. I certainly believe it plays a huge part. Nature plays a huge part, not just nurture. Tell us about growing up. What was it like for you living in this household where money was there, but it sounds like you weren't necessarily talking a lot about it? So I grew up solidly middle class of parents who grew up solidly in poverty. Both my parents grew up during the depression, born in the thirties. I'm talking about total poverty, both of them. My grandfather was a sharecropper and my mother's parents were farmers, basically. They didn't even have enough food when they were growing up. That's the level of poverty that they were at. My mom was a homemaker and my father particularly was a big success in his family. The first child to go to college, the first child to go to graduate school. Solidly middle-class when I was growing up, but that was a huge success in comparison to their backgrounds. They probably felt wealthy in comparison to what they actually were. I certainly didn't understand that I was growing up in a solid middle-class household. I never felt like I was in need of anything, but looking back at it now, our houses weren't that nice. We didn't have name brand clothes or anything like that. It's funny how when you feel that sense of security, which I certainly had, you don't view yourself as needing anything. So I think that's an important takeaway too. I appreciate this nature versus nurture idea. Your saver perspective, I would liken it to the monopoly board. I was the person who wouldn't buy. I'd shove my money underneath the board. So I was- You were a hoarder? Hoarding the money, I guess. The idea of spending was what held me back. But tell us more about being a saver as a kid. Even when I would get my allowance, I would have that money three years later. I grew up in Arizona and Utah. The people that were around me were middle class, had the idea that you need to work hard and save your money in order to get what you want. And so I remember when I was 14, I still had a lot of my allowance money from years before. And I got a job at a zoo in concession stands because back then, I guess it was fine to work when you were 14 years old. I think about (laughs) that now. I'm like, really? Why were we allowed to work at 14? And I got paid $2.42 an hour. So I saved all my money doing that so I could buy a car when I turned 16. When I really think about it, it wasn't by example because my parents didn't talk about money. So they didn't talk about what it was like when they were growing up and not having food on the table. They did not talk about that. They alluded to it, but they weren't teaching us lessons. I think that they were so pleased to be where they were that they didn't want to have to relive what they had gone through. And they were just happy to be able to provide my sister and I with a secure life. 
I don't know how I got to be a saver. And like I said, when I met my biological family in my 20s, my grandmother said to me, in other ways, I'm not like my biological father, but you're exactly like your biological father in that respect. Honestly, it was really shocking. And a lot of other stuff about nature that I learned from meeting them was strange too. But I do believe that we underestimate our genetic disposition, what effect that has on the decisions we make. Did you buy the car? Oh yeah. I bought myself a 66 Mustang. And strangely enough, this is a funny story. I was doing a prenuptial agreement. My client who I was representing, she's very successful in her own right. She had on her list of assets, a 1967 Mustang. It was not even a convertible, really nice 1967 Mustang. And she had listed the value at $70,000. And I said, are you kidding me? I sold my Mustang in 1989 when I was 19 or something like that for $5,000. I should have kept that car. That was really dumb. (laughs) You didn't know you had an investment in your hand. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Sarah, what did it feel like to buy that car? Can you take yourself back to that time when you, you were saving all this money? You had a goal in mind. You achieved the goal, but you hadn't really spent money before. I started working at 14 and I've never not had a job since the age of 14, except for one year in law school. They don't let you work your first year of law school. So I've always had a job, which I'm not suggesting is a smart thing ultimately. But once I started working, I was buying myself things. But for the most part, I was saving my money to buy this car. I've always been a goal setter. So certainly I felt it was gratifying to be able to finally meet that major goal of buying that car, which was $3,500 at the time. It had it painted. So I think the all in was $4,500. So it was, th- it was pretty thrilling. So you still turned a profit on it, it sounds like. I did. Tell us a story about going into law. What inspired you to become a lawyer and specifically a family law attorney? I think that goes back to my nature as well for security. And I don't know where the security thing comes from. Somebody's asked me that before, going back to the adoption thing. Is it because people who are adopted, they feel like they need security on some level? I don't know the answer to that, truthfully. But I was majoring in Spanish and English in undergrad, but I recognized to make a living, I'd need to go to grad school. I didn't want to be a teacher. I actually did not give it a lot of thought. Again, going back to my parents, they didn't talk to me about college and they didn't talk to me about a career. And I'm guessing it's because nobody talked to them about it either. Nobody said, hey, what is it you want to do? Or how does your future look or anything like that? But I do remember somebody in one of my English classes told me that they were applying for law school. And I thought, I guess I'll just do that. I literally just did what a classmate was doing. I applied to a bunch of different law schools and got into Stanford. I was waitlisted on a couple of other good schools. And I thought to myself at the time, I guess I'll have to be a lawyer because who turns down Stanford Law School? When I think back on it, I'd say on a weekly basis, I'm talking somebody out of becoming a lawyer. Say more about that. You know, I don't know that many happy lawyers. It's a job that you're not prepared for. I mean, maybe there are people who go into law school with an understanding that they're going to be sitting in front of a computer for the most part, even when you're a litigator for 10 to 12 hours a day in pretty much isolation because your whole goal is to bill hours and you're an hourly worker. So you don't get paid unless you're billing time. I don't think people understand that when they're going to law school. And I think that once you graduate from law school, you're stuck unless you're smart enough to get out right at the beginning and do something else. I think it's a really hard job in the way that the profession is set up with the billable hour. And I don't think there's a way to solve that problem. I think a lot of people have tried to solve the billable hour problem. I was just going to ask that from a pricing model, do you think it has to be billable hour or could be by project base? If it's not litigation... I think there are people who do project-based or just flat fee. But when you're talking about litigation where you have zero control over what the other side is going to do, and you have zero control over what the judge is going to do, you can take responsibility for yourself and your own client to an extent. But when it comes to what is the other lawyer going to do, you don't have any ability to control that. 
It's one of the most frightening thoughts that I have when I think if I said, okay, I'll do your custody case for $50,000. What if it's like the custody case from hell, which I've had many times. And ultimately it's taken half my time for six months and I'm only charging them $50,000. It's a huge risk and potentially a huge loss. So I don't think litigation can be solved that a non-billable hour. I don't know. I wish it could be because I think it would make a lot of people happier in the profession. Is financial security important to you today? Absolutely. When I think about my whole life or my life choices, it's always been driven by financial security to my own detriment. I'm almost 52 years old now, and I'm looking to the end of my legal career, at least. I don't think I'd ever stop working because I've worked my whole life, so I like to work. But I certainly am looking toward the end of this legal career, and I think back and I look at it as a success when it comes to security. At least there's that. My decision-making has been good. If it's about having financial security into my old age, I certainly have made the right decisions. How do you define financial security? For me, and I think also for my clients when I'm talking to them about it, it's feeling like you are able to meet the expenses that allow you to do things that you enjoy, but also recognizing that there's freedom in not having to work. It's a good balance of that. You can pay for your main expenses, your housing, your food, your clothing. You can also do some, maybe not all of the things that you want to do. For example, travel or luxury items, things like that, cars, the level of expense of your housing, things like that. Recognizing that you're going to potentially be on a budget in order to have the freedom of not working. That's how I view security for myself when I'm thinking about not working. While I'm working, I'm still working, obviously, and I'm not close to retirement, but I'm thinking end of my 50s, hopefully I can stop doing this full-time at least. While I'm working, being able to do what I want to do in terms of travel. I'm not an extravagant person, but certainly I like to be able to go out. And if I want to buy something in terms of clothes or something like that, I can get what I want. I think that's how I view security right now for myself. Do you and your wife talk about money in your home? Yes. I was thinking about this too. People always ask me, what's the number one cause of divorce in your experience? I mean, I'm not an expert, but I've been doing divorces for 21 years. There's probably about a 50-50 split of people who they're not on the same page regarding their finances, whether that means they simply don't talk about them or one person is completely different than the other and and how they spend. It's about spending usually. And then the other 50% is some type of infidelity, whether that's emotional or physical. But I do think it's about a 50-50 split. When I think about my experience as well, my clients and my own experience for that matter, I've been divorced myself. I think that those who can get on track on their financial perspective have a much greater likelihood of being able to stay in their marriage. I do have a lot of clients who are able to get good professional help, whether that's therapy or financial help, and they end up not getting divorced because they get on the same track when it comes to that really important issue. Able to self-correct along the way. After doing the work that you do for 21 years and having experienced a divorce yourself, what have you learned from the experience that informs the way you and your wife are talking about money today and the decisions you're making together? First off, my wife and I, we come from the same background financially. We both grew up very much the same. We are the same age. We have the same philosophy when it comes to spending and saving because we had those discussions from the very beginning. And probably because I'm a divorce lawyer, I had those discussions from the very beginning. I don't know a lot of people feel necessarily comfortable talking to the people they're dating about money, but I surely recommend it. I think it's super important to find out if the person that you're considering spending your life with has the same philosophy as you do about money. That was hugely important to me. 
we have a very successful marriage all the way around, but I certainly attribute it to getting us through the hard times that we have those things in common. My first marriage, I'm very good friends with my ex, but there was a difference. There was an age difference. There was a background difference. There was a difference in power and equity in the relationship because of the difference in our financial situations. I do think it played a huge part in our marriage, not lasting longer than it did. I do think that who you pick and their background is super important when it comes to marriages. Would you say more about that power differential? Because power is something that comes up in money all the time. When couples decide that they are going to separate and divorce, there is a power shift that I've seen working with clients through those situations. But say more about your experience with it and how you recognized it and importantly, what you did about it. For whatever reason, I think that people in relationships, not just my own, but certainly was in my own relationship, and even sometimes in my current marriage, there's this idea that the person who's making more money or who has more money somehow has more power in the relationship or decision-making ability. That's a self-inflicted wound. In my opinion, once you're married, there should be equity in regard to decision-making and the way that you're processing, the way that you are spending, the way that you are saving. I believe that if you're on an equal playing field in that regard, you're going to be a lot happier. Easier said than done. I think if somebody comes into a marriage who's got a lot of money, a lot of savings, you're living off of those savings to a certain extent. Maybe you're making the same amount of money, but what if somebody's got a few million dollars in the bank from an IPO or something like that? It happens all the time in the Bay Area where you've got two people who are making good money, but somebody's got 10 million bucks in the bank because they've had a good IPO in their work. Suddenly that person, for whatever reason, and the other person too, the person with the less money feels like the person with the money who's spending it on the vacations, on the cars, on the house, whatever, the down payment on the house in the Bay Area, for example, we'll use a million dollars of my savings towards the house. Now, suddenly the house is more that person than the other. It's just a day-by-day grinding effect on a marriage. I found myself in my first marriage, I didn't have that savings. And I always felt like I wasn't bringing as much to the table. Later, I realized that was a self-inflicted wound. I didn't have to think that way, but I was allowing myself to think that way. And I was allowing my ex to think that way. There's a book, Nudge, by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. I don't know if you guys have read it, but I'm going to go back to Cammie's mentioning monopoly money earlier. There's a study that they mentioned in that book, and it's all around behavioral science, that when people play monopoly, whoever has the most monopoly money in the game starts taking on more power. They start acting like they have more power and the other players give them more power. Are you implying it was all about power for me? I was not because you were putting your money under the board. (laughs) I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a topic that I don't think many people talk about and it needs to be talked about because I think if you can have an open conversation with your partner, with your friends, with your family members, whoever it is that you're in this relationship with, where there's an unequal amount of financial resources, it helps level the playing field. So thank you for bringing that up. You also work with clients putting premarital agreements in place. I was just about to talk about premarital agreements because I do a lot of premarital agreements for people who have a lot of separate assets coming into the marriage. They want to make sure that they've protected those assets. A lot of people have a really negative gut reaction to premarital agreements. What I always say to them is when you get married, you're entering into a contract. Most people don't know what the contract is. They pay zero attention to it. And the only time that they understand the contract is once they're getting a divorce. Why not have a premarital agreement 
which is your own contract, you've negotiated that contract and you know everything about your soon-to-be spouse's finances and they know everything about yours when you're walking into that marriage and you also know what's going to happen if you guys get divorced. The level of power in a good way that you feel when you have that knowledge base with a premarital agreement, it's the most important contract anybody will ever sign because it's going to cover every aspect of your financial life and to a certain extent, your emotional life too, with your soon-to-be spouse. I think that it's so empowering. Every state has a different marriage contract. People don't have a general understanding of what that contract means until they're getting divorced. Why not walk into that marriage having that understanding? I just think it's so important that people consider it. Not everybody needs a premarital agreement, but I do think that people who walk in onto a marriage older, already with established assets, maybe choosing not to have children, things like that, I think it's really important to consider at least. It's a really great framework. I'm curious, Sarah, through your work and just your personal perspectives on money and happiness and money and unhappiness, what are some of the variables that you think contribute to either side? When you were saying that, I was thinking about my dad who passed away in 2016, but I remember him always saying, you know, money doesn't bring you happiness, but it sure does help. And this is coming from somebody who was in poverty at one point. So I always believe, well, okay, he's right about that. I think there is truth that money doesn't bring you happiness. I see that on a daily basis. I'm dealing with unhappy people 99% of the time, professionally speaking. All my clients have good money because they would be able to afford to pay me if they didn't. So certainly money hasn't brought them happiness. But that being said, Money brings freedom. That's what money brings is freedom. And I think that in terms of we're talking about prenups, prenups bring freedom. Knowledge is freedom and that brings you knowledge. And I think that in general, having the access to money definitely gives you options and gives you freedom. Those are great points. And I agree with you on the premarital agreement. I think they do have a bad rap and I think that they can be very beneficial contracts. So thank you for speaking to that. I want to go back to what you were saying earlier, Sarah, about the biology of money and having certain traits in our nature. When you're thinking about money, when you're talking about money, where in your body are you feeling money? I think it's always been stressful for me. I wonder about that. Like, is money stressful for men? I should start asking men about that. I've never asked that question, but I certainly have always felt tightness in my chest when I'm thinking about my own personal financial decisions. I know it's not supposed to be that way. That was a good question. I had never thought of that. I'm curious if you've ever had a money situation come up that you can think of, not a stressful situation, maybe a more jubilant one. And I'm wondering if you can remember if you still felt it in your chest. When I'm happy, I don't feel anything like that tightness. Like you feel like you're having a heart attack. I remember I was working for a big law firm right out of law school and I received my first bonus, which was the same amount of my annual salary. And I remember thinking, I'm rich. I think the amount was like $50,000 and that's nothing to sneeze at. I'm not suggesting that at all. But in this day and age, living in the Bay Area, we know what bonuses look like. And I remember actually thinking when I was going into law school, coming from Salt Lake City, Utah, going down to Palo Alto, I had never even heard of Palo Alto, actually. I'd of course heard of Stanford, but I didn't know Stanford was Palo Alto. I remember telling friends when I was leaving Salt Lake to go to law school, one day I will make $50,000 a year and I will be rich. I have a friend who I just was talking to and she was like, do you remember when you said if you made $50,000 a year, you'd be rich? I certainly felt jubilant when I got into law school. And when I got that first bonus, it was like, oh my God, I'm rich. What'd you do with it? Oh, I saved it. (laughs) (laughs) You are consistent. Yeah, there you go. I take that back. I think I bought a new car. I was driving a Toyota Celica and I traded it and bought a new car. What's 
one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't discussed yet? It's really important, and I don't always follow this advice, but to have a good grasp on your specific financial circumstances. And the reason why I say I don't always follow this advice is there's sometimes when I'll be on a meeting with my law partner, we've known each other for 15 years and we've been partners for 11. So we're like sisters at this point, but I'll be on a meeting with her and I'll say, I know more about so-and-so's finances than I do about my own, because that's what I do for a living, right? I'm dividing up people's assets and dealing with their finances, but I recognize that's a mistake. So I think having a good grasp on your own finances, and that goes back to your previous question about emotion. And for me, stress, sometimes I don't want to look at my retirement account. Like right now, I don't want to look at it. The advice I would give is don't be afraid to look at what you've got. That's how you make good decisions. That's what I've learned, at least in my profession is have that knowledge. Don't have that fear. Sarah, this has been a really fun conversation. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My next conversation will be with my wife. It's going to be about, gosh, when can we retire? Can we retire earlier by 60? That would be nice. Do you have a vision for what retirement looks like for you too? We're big outdoors people. So it's definitely having some land, having some space, having room for animals and family members to come visit. We're not luxurious type of people, but we certainly like to have our camper van and I like to horseback ride and ski. I like to ski. Oh my God. You know how much skiing costs now? It's disgusting. You're going to give Cammy a heart attack. Yeah. Two days, two people, rent skis and tickets. It's awful. Well, we won't go there. Sarah Van Voris, thank you again for joining us on Money Tales. You really shared so much about yourself and great wisdom for our listeners. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue, or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.